Friends, welcome back to another episode of Changing Company. I'm really excited to introduce you to my friend Chuck DeGroat, and we are going to dive into his book called Wholeheartedness. I really hope for just those of you out there listening who struggle with exhaustion or anxiety or stress or busyness or depression or what have you, that this conversation can really just be a resource to open up some new doors for hopefully a path to discovering more joy in life and the steps to start that journey. I'm from Long Island, New York. Used to have a thick New York accent, but that's gone now after years of being away. And um, made my way to Iowa for college and then uh, two years in Chicago and felt a calling to seminary, not to become a pastor, but to become an academic. And three years into seminary on this academic track, um, I'm in Oxford, England, studying, thinking like this is it. This is, the, this is the moment where I'm validated and I get the credentials that I need or the letters that I need to, to get the big PhD. And I'm just sort of knocked on my butt. You know, it's a combination of my own stuff. Uh, it's a combination of exhaustion and ego and all sorts of other things that land me um, in a therapist chair back in Orlando <laughs> and and a man sitting there saying to me you just can't keep living like this like you th so this is in the summer of 1997 and he's saying to me like I, I, I understand that you want to go off and do a PhD but if you take that trajectory you're going to be dangerous to um, you're going to be dangerous to your spouse, to the people you care for, pastor, teach. Uh, you're just not a healthy human being. And so that, for me, was the beginning of, of me doing my own work, uh, getting another degree in mental health counseling, and then a first job in ministry where I was doing a combination of, like, ministry stuff and counseling. Uh, so that started that whole trajectory. So 20 years now in a combination of I've been pastoral ministry, I'm a therapist, uh, I've done spiritual direction. Um, I've had this great opportunity to live on both coasts. So from Orlando to San Francisco, um, started a couple of church-based counseling centers, uh, a fellows program. And about five and a half years ago, I got a call to Western Seminary where, where I teach pastoral care and counseling now. So um, I've been in West Michigan now <laughs> in the middle of the country for the last five and a half years doing this. And you wrote Wholeheartedness when? Yeah. So uh, my first book was called Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places. That was like 2010-ish um, because I sort of had this vow to be 40 years old when mm. I, I didn't want to write a book before I was 40. And then a book called Toughest People to Love a couple years later and then Wholeheartedness a couple years later. So it's been out for maybe three years, two years, something like that. Yeah. And... Why did you get into writing specifically? Yeah, good question. Well, I've been writing since college. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I loved, I wrote controversial pieces uh, for my college newspaper at this like small Christian college, like why um, the Bible would like allow us to drink on campus as faculty and students. <laughs> that was one controversial article. There are all sorts of interesting things that I look back and I'm like, you were so arrogant back then. But I, I just, I discovered back then that I loved writing, and uh, I loved writing through the seminary process. And then 
I was doing some teaching on like the Exodus as a way of understanding how we're all in a kind of slavery and we've got to go on, on this wilderness journey. That there's like no quick way, there's no three steps or seven steps to, to your best life now. Like we all have to go on a wilderness journey. And it was actually students that I was teaching at the time who said, you've got to write a book. Like this has got to become a book. And so uh, and I was like, I don't know how to do that. I, like, how do you even begin that process? But I happened to be introduced to a publisher who said, that's a book. Let's do it. Mm. And that's where that whole process began. And so today, obviously, I want to talk about wholeheartedness. And I think it's very relevant for obviously everything going on in the country and kind of the chaos today. And we can obviously see it as chaos, or we can actually see as some of the despair is starting to erupt to where we start asking really good and really hard, difficult questions yeah. to get us to kind of start looking within ourselves. And, 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 I, and I love the, I'm just going to read the title here, The Wholeheartedness, Busyness, Exhaustion, and Healing the Divided Self. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to just dive in and go through a, yeah. a few of your themes here yeah. and, and just just start it right off. Um, what, one, of, one of my favorite quotes they have in here is um, that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah, Thoreau. Yeah. And, and, of course, I think that that is relevant across, you know, <clears throat> mm-hmm. all gaps, mm-hmm. men, women, all socioeconomic statuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you you take it um, you take it much deeper than that through uh, Bridget Bridge Schultz's work. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I want to just have you kind of tie into to to a little bit more of this. Um, mm-hmm. You you talk about here from her report that two thirds of us report not having enough time with their spouse, and three three fourths report not having enough time with their children. Mm-hmm. Yet research shows that even most of us work on our vacations. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I think a big part of why I wrote this was I'm living in San Francisco at the time and I'm, I'm a pastor of spiritual formation to really busy 20 and 30 somethings, mostly mm. in our church. And um, they moved to San Francisco because it's this vibrant city and yet they're not living with any kind of vibrancy or resiliency. They're exhausted. And I remember around that time, uh, Brene Brown's work came out. Like she, her big TED Talk went viral. It's maybe like 2009, 10, somewhere around there. And people were asking me, they were using the language that she was using that she didn't come up with. That I, I've been using, a lot of people have been using language of wholeheartedness for years and years. But people were beginning to ask, like, this Brene Brown is talking about wholeheartedness. What does that mean? And why don't we talk about this in the church? And, and so that was a big tie for me. Like how, how do we as really busy people, often quite exhausted, giving way more of ourselves than we have to give, how, how do we find some sense of life, resilience, um, sustainability, flourishing in the midst of all, all the many activities and obligations we have? Well, and... You tie it back into her work to quote her when you said, the brainless rushing about makes us feel time starved, which does not result in death, but rather as an ancient <laughs> Athenian philosopher observed and never beginning to live. Yeah. So 
so that's it. There is the sense that people are on this hamster wheel and they're not really living. They're just surviving, right? And, and I think in, in part, this, this for me was a working out of this stuff in my own life because I was in a similar place. Here I'm the one, I'm the one being asked to start a counseling center, a lay counseling program, uh, sitting down with all these folks. And I'm giving and giving and giving and not really living. And, um, you know, one of the things I discovered when I moved here, one of the commitments I made, I should say, when I moved here was to not uh, work and write at night. Because every night I go back, and I have two young kids, but inevitably that's when I get a lot of my writing done. And it was like, I'm just, here I am. What a contradiction. I'm writing about wholeheartedness, and I'm exhausted right now. <laughs> this is not good, right? So, yeah. Well, and... It... And, and you tie this really beautifully into not only not only of our culture, mm-hmm. which kind of targets this sense of shame that you're already tying into, yeah. right, really well yeah. about that and how it drives us to yeah. now keep working where, well, who are you to rest and play with your children? You need to produce, produce, produce. Yeah, right. Um, but then you completely flip the script and challenge us on our scarcity mindset. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I... I, I love this this idea of, I want to read one more piece here. You say that Americans actually have more time than they did in the 1960s. Yeah. Can you just explain to me a bit about how you're tying in these two contradictions? Yeah. So, so what that gets at is that really there's this perception that we have less time than we do. Um, but the reality is, is that we, because of technology, because of some of the things that make life more efficient, we have, we have, in fact, more time. We just don't realize it. And um, a good, a kind of a good example of this, I was just thinking about this the other day with a friend who is, uh, they've asked me to do a retreat for a church. And, and this guy was saying, well, people are so busy, I'm not even sure if they're going to come. And I said, it's astounding to me how people will do the things that they really value. So the question is, in your context, your church, will they really value this? You know, because we give attention to the things we really value. And so we, ha- we have more time. Some of, the, some of the modern technologies that we have actually allow life to go along a little bit more efficiently, uh, allow us to, to um, uh, it gives us the time and freedom that we, we, we wanted but we're just filling that time with other things, with mindless things, right? And so, um, and so now I'm getting an alert every Sunday morning on my phone, telling me how much time, how much screen time I've uh-huh. used that week, right? You're up three percent this week, or you're up thirty percent this week, Chuck, <laughs> because I've been mindless, mindlessly scrolling through Twitter. So you ask me, Chuck, uh, you must be busy. You must not have a lot. Oh yeah, I'm I'm so busy, and yet I've spent three hours this week you know, on my phone. Just scrolling. So just scrolling, right, through Twitter, through Facebook, Mm. through reading books on the phone, whatever it is. So we have to become mindful of of our life and how we're using our time and how we're wasting our time. Well, and that, so this is a statistic I actually used in the new book, which I felt very confident using it because it actually came from our government, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Um, The average... Uh, adult, and this is across all the board, if you average yeah. teens to, to retired folks, uh, we spend 3.8 hours a day in mindless activities. So that yeah, would be, that that's, sounds right. that's cell phone yeah. to Netflix. Yep. 
and I and I and I couldn't believe that at first. I was like, "There's no way, four hours a day." Yeah. I mean, come on, no, we are too busy to spend yeah. four hours. Yeah. But then I got, I actually got pretty angry because a few months ago, part of our Giving Tree program, I had to cancel mm. one of our events because nobody showed. Yeah, and I was like, I can't get people to show up for an hour once a month. Yeah, um, because we're too busy and and. And, and I started on this rabbit trail, and I'm realizing, but then, you know, it's if there's football game, right, you mm -hmm. know, and you're there, and this the mm -hmm. energy and the passion, the jet's flying over, and everybody there is showing up, and it's so exciting, and everybody goes to the games, yeah. but we don't, you, you know, we don't care about maybe volunteering, what have you, and I finally realized, you know, this notion of busyness is like, no, we're actually not that busy, because if I called you tomorrow and said, you know, can you show up to to my yeah. event to volunteer? Well, you know, I got wife, yeah. kids. But if I actually called you and said, hey, I've got MSU or U of M football tickets. Yeah, Are you in? Right. And all of a sudden, magically, you will cancel yeah. what, you will cancel your kid's dance recital to be there, yeah. right? And it's it's what you were just talking about, this notion of where do we actually place our value? Yeah. Not our busyness and our schedules, yeah. but our value That's on it. things. That's it. Yep. That's heavy. Yeah, it is. And it requires us to do some soul work to do some introspection. Um, and, and I think oftentimes connecting, connecting some of the dots of our stories. Like, so, so when I connect some of the dots of my story, I realize that um, I learned at a very early age that if I'm engaged in um, uh, things that help and serve others, I get, a, I get a lot of life, I get a lot of feedback, I get a mm. lot of, you know, and so that drama continues to play out in my late 40s now. Um, you, we've got to connect the dots of our stories and see uh, we, where, we, where we give our time is where we, we place our value, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it says something about who we are. They're, they're, that's not bad. We just have to become aware of it, you know? And so for me, wholeheartedness wasn't about a time management strategy, right? And that's where we normally go with these things is I, I want to be less busy. So now I've got to come up with a time management strategy. Wholeheartedness is about becoming more aware, I think, at some level of, of the urgings of our heart, um, more aware of where we place our presence, more aware of how much time we spend on the hamster wheel. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but something you allude to is this reality of, okay, it's not about shaming and guilting our ways to make yeah. sure, okay, you volunteer each month. Yeah. It's actually if you ground yourself in the wholeheartedness. Yeah you will find yourself volunteering more because right. you open up to what actually matters in this life. Yeah. And, and wholeheartedness implies a kind of a singleness of heart. You know, Kierkegaard talked about this, right? When we're divided, when our hearts are divided, um, we're giving our attention to a lot of different things versus um, the thing that really animates us, the thing that we're really passionate about. And so um, the, the, the singular heart, like the, the Bible calls this purity of heart, right? The person who's pure of heart, um, as Kierkegaard said, wills one thing. Um, his or her heart is animated by that thing that um, they're most passionate about. And this is where I think when you see people in, in the wheelhouse, when they're really thriving, it's when they're living from that core place, right? Mm. That core place of passion. So... Yeah, but when we're divided, we're exhausted. You know, yeah. we're trying to do way too many things. And so that's why I was saying part of this book was, for me, self-revelatory 
in the sense that I, I was beginning to discover, oh yeah, like I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm writing a book on wholeheartedness and I'm running this thing and starting that over there and trying to help all these people. What does this mean for you, Chuck? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is the authentic component of it. Yeah. It's not writing from a place of I have it all figured out. Oh, no. It's, no. It's you're in it with us. No. No. No, I love that. <laughs> well, the there's there's two more the two more components of your book that I that I want to tie into without you know giving the whole book away here, but yeah. uh, self perfection. Mm-hmm. You you quote Thomas Merton, and it's one of my favorite quotes that yeah. people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success, only to find once they reach the top that the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 so good. I love that, and I think it's so relevant today. But I, I want to ask you to actually expel a bit on the uh, y- your notion of that we are ashamed of our humanness, mm-hmm. and in this desire yeah. to reach this pinnacle of success, we're actually constantly aspiring to become like our own versions of the gods. Yeah, yeah. One way I talk about it is we're we're always living like three three to five feet off the ground, you know. So I wrote a I self published a book called Falling Into Goodness, which was a Lenten devotional. It was just a really fun project in part because I think Lent is this yearly invitation back to our humanity. You know, you are dust into dust you shall return, mm. right? And it's an invitation um, to recognize that we can't do it all. I, I, think, I think that when we're living three to five or maybe 10 feet or maybe 20 feet off the ground, right, when we're... Um, when, uh, to use that other metaphor, when we're on the hamster wheel, um, we're trying to evade our own humanness. Like we're we're trying to we're trying to um, overcome it at some level. We're not recognizing that we have limitations, that we can't do it all, that we can't save the world. I think there's something about for me um, over the years, doing what I do, therapist, spiritual director that I've had to learn to say no over and over and over again. Like, I just don't have time. Um, I want to help you, I long to help you, but I, I just don't have time. I can't do it. Um, and in saying no over here, um, I'm saying yes to the reality that I'm only human, mm-hmm. that I'm limited, and that's okay, you know? Yeah. Well, and you also say that we'll do, was it anything to edit our own stories? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that really that really ties into when when we can wake up to that reality of how we are trying to edit and look at all the things we say yes to and how perfect and amazing we are, there then ties more into the humility of once we can start letting go of those notions, we become much more okay about saying no to certain things Mm -hmm. when we're realizing we're actually saying yes to a lot more in the long run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's hard. It's excruciating, (laughs) especially if it has become like an addictive pattern. Mm. And that's where... I mean, I think I found my own life at times, a lot of other people will come to me and they'll say, well, I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to, and and yet they're not willing to step away or they can't step away from patterns that have Mm -hmm. become ingrained. We know now even neurobiologically, these have become neural grooves in their brains. Like literally that's the only thing they know to do. Um, And it takes some work, often takes some effort, practices to move in a different direction. Uh, That can just be really hard though. Well, and you stated actually one of one of my fears and my deep insecurities, and I'm trying to remember um, because you have Laird's book here, Into the Silent Land. Yeah. The lady at the end, I forgot her name. She studied irises for a living, mm-hmm. 
and she goes through and she gets the autoimmune disease and she's dying a slow, painful death and she's mm -hmm. bedridden and she can't get out to work on her irises and she gets to the very end of her life and she says, um, well, I learned something through all of this. The irises were beautiful and I had missed it all along, right? Mm. And you say this actually in your book when you said, I missed the great beauty that surrounded me in every direction. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think this is uh, a byproduct of not being present. And mm -hmm. I think so much of this comes back around to the practice of presence. It's as simple as that. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I, when, when I do work with people in therapy, I'll say we can either go in the direction of looking at your past, your mom, your dad, all the pain, and, and that's really valuable. Or I, I want to invite you to simply just practice being more present to your life. And what's really interesting about that is nine out of ten times people will say simply en engaging life from a place of greater presence. Like um, what I mean by that is like we can wake up in the morning, get out of the same side of the bed, uh, go to the shower, take the shower, brush our teeth, get the glass of orange juice, walk out the door and not even be aware of what we've done. Drive to work the same way that we do every day. Right. And and um, what we're learning is that it's healthy for us in so many ways. But again, neurobiologically to live a life of presence, to move from the anxious limbic system is that's where we live on the hamster wheel to the to the centered sort of prefrontal cortex where we can live from a place of awareness and when we live from a place of presence or awareness, like I can, I can um, experience the beauty of sitting with another human being when I'm doing a counseling session rather than just being in helper mode, yeah. you know, right? Um, I can walk across the pine grove here at Hope College to the cafeteria and actually see the trees around me and experience the, the greenness of the pine grove versus just being in my head and thinking mm -hmm. about the next appointment that I have at one o'clock or something. Or right. reading Twitter as you walk through the Twitter. sidewalk, right? Yeah. Missing it all entirely, yeah. right? That's part of the hard reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you kind of bring us back through to this, this notion of self-compassion, right? Yeah. And I'm always very careful to, to make sure that when we have hard discussions like these, and for people who are going to at least dip their toe in the water, to look and changing their lives that we don't forget this component of self-compassion because yeah. it is so easy to yeah. go, wow, I'm such a pile of garbage. I wasted six hours yeah. this week on Instagram yeah. or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. And instead of going, oh, what can I do with those six yeah. hours differently or see the opportunity of change? And yeah. so um, I, I love this quote from your book where you said, self-compassion frees us from the slavery of narcissistic self-promotion and self perfection yeah yeah so self-compassion has become a really important concept for me we, for years psychologists talked about self-esteem and we we got ourselves into some trouble in this culture of self-esteem this culture of you can do it you can be whatever you want to be that like you can you be an nfl <laughs> quarterback if you want to be that and the reality is is that you know, um, I, I could never be an NFL quarterback. It's just like not going to happen. I'm never going to be a, you know, award-winning chemist or so. So self-compassion allows us to um, value what is most true about us. Um, and, and, um, and I think 
there's something about this that is uh, even allows us to acknowledge um, our pain, our brokenness, um, not from a perspective of oh, yuck, I can't believe I'm so deficient. Mm. There's so much, but from a place of so I am fragile. Yeah. Um, I am broken. I I am human. I can't do it all. Um, so here are my gifts, and here are my challenges, and that's just me. You know, <laughs> that's okay. Well, and I I want to know if you could also paint us a little bit of a picture of where are we going with this? Like, why is it so critical? Not not even from the basis of just our busyness, but uh-huh. um, you you quote um, Richard Rohr, mm-hmm. and it's it's actually one of my favorite quotes: the the whole people see and create yeah. wholeness wherever they go. Split people see and create splits in everything and yes. everybody. Yes. And yeah. can you just tie in a little bit of, of yeah. what's actually waiting on the other side, not just for yeah. ourselves, but for the community at a time when everything seems yeah. to be falling apart. Right. So, and that's such an important quote. I, I think that ultimately this isn't just um, about us, right? This isn't just about uh, me being more wholehearted, but this is about me being an ambassador of, of this wholeness in every sphere that I operate in. And so it means that um, in, in the midst of uh, my work at the seminary, uh, in, in an anxious season where we're looking for a new president and, uh, you know, as a faculty, we're wondering what's next, um, that if I'm living out of a place of wholeheartedness, uh, I don't have to. I don't have to be so polarized. I don't have to live reactively. I don't have to worry so much about. Well, if it's not this person, we're you know it's all going to die. You know we're going to have to shut down, or it's got to be this person because this is the hero who's going to come and save us. You know I think when you live from a place of wholeheartedness, there's a, it's a place of radical acceptance of what is, and um, that's not to say that we don't long for for more at all. Mm-hmm. But there really is a sense that it's okay. Like it really is okay. And I, I can embrace my own limitations in this moment and the limitations of others. Um, and I, I don't have to fix it. I don't have to solve all the problems. I can sort of just embrace reality. It's a very kind of Zen-like kind of state in some ways. Um, but I think it's the wisdom of, of just showing up once again and being present to whatever circumstance you find yourself. And it's maybe what... St. Paul means when he says, be content in all things, you know, there's an open handedness to life and whatever it brings to you. Yeah. Well, and one of the things you said that, that I actually had to stop and sit with for a while, because I don't think our culture does a really good job of sharing the story when you said, um, wholeness is our birthright. Yeah. And I just try and think about how different would our community be? How different would our world yeah. be if if that's how we were raised and engaged with yeah. society? Yeah. I mean, there's what we're discovering now is um, like the ubiquity of trauma in society. The trauma is not just limited to someone who had a per- particular experience of abuse, but that there is a kind of... Um, collective trauma that exists in our souls and our psyches Um, there's a kind of trauma that we interiorize through growing up in a in a um, in a world where there's the possibility of a terrorist attack 
um, or even in a world where there's constant comparison and competition so that it's a never ever enough right and I, I think part of what we're getting at here is um, naming the trauma that drives all our anxious strategies for for surviving life mm -hmm. and um, what, what practices of wholeheartedness do for you and I share some practices in the latter part of the book um, but they invite us once again to be present, to breathe, to be attentive to our own souls, to be attentive to the reality that God is always with us and in us. And as Augustine says, more near to us than we are to ourselves. Um, it's, Augustine says it's we who've gone away. God is already more near to us. It's we who've gone away. So it's inviting us back to um, that primal wholeness, you know, that, that birthright, as you said. Um, it's native to us. You don't. Ha you can't buy it in a store. Um, you can't accomplish it in, in three steps or seven steps. You fall back into it, in a sense. And oftentimes that comes when you're just sick and tired of um, living with that massive desperation that we talked about earlier. I just don't want to live like that anymore. I'm tired of climbing the ladder and and you know realizing it was propped up against the wrong wall. You know I'm tired of competing and comparing. Um, that's just an exhausting way to live. Well, and even out of respect for the authenticity of, you know, some of the story that I know about you and the trauma yeah. that you've had to face that obviously led you to get to this point, I think I have a lot of respect that you're willing to share that notion with us to open the doors up to say that this is affecting all of us, not yeah not necessarily just certain groups or, you yeah. know, where we get in that yeah. comparison mindset. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. and I haven't experienced that, so I can't, or, you know, or yeah. you don't know my story, you can't compare to me, you know, yeah. and it breaks some of those barriers down. So I would, I would love to, j just, just to kind of tie it together, yeah. what advice for people who, who hear this and mm -hmm. they can feel that quaint, Mm -hmm. sigh of desperation that yeah. might be at the back of their minds yeah. um what suggestions do you have yeah to just even get started on this road yeah well so i mean i think it really begins with a longing for more i mean i if that longing isn't there um then there's no practice that i can offer you know that will change someone's life um there really does have to be this palpable moment of like, I'm just sick and tired of living like this. So even when I do counseling with people, people come in wanting to change, like I said, but two or three sessions in, I'm like, do you really want to change? Like, is that what you really came here for? Or no, actually I don't. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty happy, you know, drinking um, seven beers a night and sleeping around. Okay, well, thanks for being honest. <laughs> you know, so there really has to be um, at some level, some sense of, I just, don't want to live like that anymore. Um, oftentimes, uh, I use the language of Walter Brueggemann. Uh, we, we live our lives from the perspective of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And there are these disorientation moments that are pregnant with opportunity for real transformation. Um, but we only get there when we take our suffering seriously, when we take our pain seriously, when we take our doubt seriously. And so that for me is like, step number one if there is a step you know and and uh if people aren't there they're not there and that's okay too you know like there are some people who just need to jump back on the hamster wheel and keep going if 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 that's what they need to do 
Um, but I do think if there is that, that moment that, you know, that you realize I'm done, uh, you've got to bring it to someone else. Like you've got to bring it in relationship to a friend, to a spiritual director, to a therapist. Um, um, and, and then I, I think in tandem with that into practices that invite you into presence. For me, that's um, meditative and contemplative practices. I talk about that some in, in uh, whatever chapter it is in the book. I think it's like seven or eight or something. Um, but it's engaging in practices that wake you up out of your slumber because mm. we're like sleepwalking through life. Yeah. So I need relationships. I talk about three things, relationship, awareness, and story. We need relationships. We need places where we can be awakened with another human being. Awareness. We need to... We need practices that invite us to presence and story. We need to connect the dots, why we're living in the ways that we're living. Why do we keep operating out of the same redundant patterns? And um, if you're able to begin to engage in those kinds of ways, um, I, I, I see real change, real transformation begin to happen in people. So that's a start. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for this. Obviously, um, I'll, I'll have a link to your book, uh, Wholeheartedness. Yeah. But um, if, if people are looking for resources, they're a good way to connect with you or your website. Yeah, so the website is chuckdegroat.net, and I do blogging, and I've got some other information there. And um, I've, got a, I've got a resource out. Um, it's a, a really an introduction to contemplative prayer. It's on Teachable, and you can find that on the website too. And um, that's just like a, a five-session video teaching on on really introducing people to the practice of contemplative prayer and its value today so um yeah and then other than that uh you know the typical places like twitter and facebook and uh and uh my office at the seminary if they want to track me down (laughs) (laughs) so yeah thanks for the opportunity yeah no thanks for doing this i appreciate it